It's Tia here. We are picking up with part two of our interview with Natalie and Layla from We Are Feminist Leaders. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend you go back and listen to it because we are picking up right where we left off. Bye. So then if you are a feminist leader or you're working with emergent leaders, how do you then, what's your guidance to them and in your training and working within this intersectional space and perfection and across your teams and dealing with tears, ways of working and mine and Natalie's and yours and all our different needs? What do you, how do you train emergent leaders on that? In lots of different ways. I think we've already, Layla's already mentioned self-reflection. And that's really where we ask people to start. Some people are more into that than others. They come, we, get, we experience sometimes quite high levels of resistance from some people in doing that because it requires a lot from us, a lot of our learning, especially depending on how you're positioned. I guess just really reflecting on th- that conversation with Tia and how people treat us differently in terms of black and white thinking <laughs> and our expectations of each other. And you mentioned earlier that leadership is dealing with those grey areas. But as a leader, you want that black and white and control, don't you? That's your go to because you're like, I need to know how to run this organisation. I need to work with all those people. How do you break out of that and say, here's complexity, here's the grey area? Areas. Here's a tear. Here's a Lauren. How do you lead that? Mm. How we work with emerging leaders is through a very feminist approach to learning about leadership. Yeah. Like Natalie said, yes, it's space for critical reflection, encouraging a lot of critical thinking, sharpening people's power analysis skills a lot, not just at the institutional level, so they can analyse institutional power dynamics and how they work and how they operate, but also at the interpersonal level. So like looking, encouraging people to think about their own levels of power and privilege and how that might differ to other participants in the programme. And then all of this kind of needs to be translated into some form of action, ultimately. And we're lucky because we work with people over the course of three months. The space is in between sessions for people to go away and have a think, which really helps. So it's not a one-off, one-day training and that's it. And there's a journey, I don't know, I think what we hear from people is that there's a journey of learning, unlearning as well. And it can be really difficult because people will come in wanting a toolkit as you said, Lauren, what do I do? A, B, C. And this is a very different approach to learning, feminist approaches to learning, especially, I don't know about you, but those of us who've worked in the international sector where the work around gender, first of all, we haven't spoken so much about feminism. It's always been couched in the language of gender and it's been a very technical pursuit, not a political one. So there's a lot of unlearning. Some people really launch in and embrace it, but some people just really aren't used to that. That kind of, okay, you need to take ownership of your own learning journey. You need to do the critical thinking and we're not going to be left on your own with support from your peers, with support from me and Natalie. Together, we'll get there. We'll find a bit more clarity. But yeah, it's not top down. It's not linear. And that feels uncomfortable for a lot of people, for sure. But I think we have worked with people who definitely get there. And they've been on a real journey. And some of the things we hear from our participants, I don't know if it's, I don't know if this is a good thing or not. They'll have gone through the program and then they'll, we followed up with them and they said, I've just decided I'm taking a sabbatical or I'm taking three months off. I need to focus on my own care or I'm rethinking the sector that I work in. Those are some of the things we we start to hear. I was going to ask, how do you know when people have got there? But it seems like that deeper reflection on their care, realising that something needs to change or maybe the signs that people are somewhat along that journey. Yeah, sorry, Natalie, I wasn't sure if you had anything else to add there. 
I was going to say, but I know the other sort of examples we hear are people saying things like I've set up a network of feminist allies in my organisation or I've connected to people within my work environment that I've never connected to before because I've realised we actually can build some solidarity here where there might have been assumed difference before. And that's, I think, a really powerful example of it in action and the other thing I just add is that we hear a lot that people who are coming to feminist leadership is maybe not something completely brand new but it's a bit different it's not the norm perhaps in their organization it can start to feel really overwhelming where do I even start how can I just me make some change here and so one of the things that we talk a lot about is the power of small actions so we propel people towards action but we try to encourage people to see even small actions as having the potential for transformation because we've seen that happen and that can be a useful place to start for some and that reminds me of something that tia says a lot when we're doing the planning meetings where it's like what would you do tomorrow which i think we found it is a hard question to answer well people hate that question because <laughs> they're like yeah in three months time six months time a year five years we're gonna do this we're gonna it's gonna be wild I'm like okay tell me one action you're gonna take tomorrow and you can see people's souls dying <laughs> right before your eyes so it split me in two there's one part that's just, yes, this all makes sense. This is how I want to work. This I have my like aspiration and then I have the self, the other self that's like pessimistic and terrible. It must be really challenging to anchor a strategy in uncertainty because as somebody who has led and continues to lead things, ambiguity is really hard. And as somebody who works in risk management, you're trying to minimize or maximize the uncertainty in a way that's beneficial to you. And one of the things that I'm reflecting on as you both were speaking is when we come to people with models that we think are about, so we do models that are led by participants. So we'll do a participant-led evaluation where we don't make any decisions. We ask the organization or the programs, their constituents, their beneficiaries, their clients, they have to be compensated for that time. They design the everything. They do interviews where it's safe to do all that stuff. And I know that when we've pitched it to a few clients, they've said, oh, is it easy? And we say, no, it's not easy. It's very hard. It's hard to do. There's a lot of question marks through the whole journey. It always changes. And you just have to be open to that. That's a roundabout way of saying I can really feel I have this tension inside of me. It's hard to really embody something that situates you in your own discomfort on purpose. Yeah, I'm terrified of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always placing you in your own discomfort, yeah. but you have to put yourself there. And that's what's hard. <laughs> I think this that's the thing about this work is it's going to require, it does require a certain amount of courage to dive in and a level of self-awareness around the discomfort that you're prepared to sit with. And if you're in a leadership role, a preparedness to to not be defensive so we see and you see all this all the time I know that defensiveness from leadership in particular derails these processes all the time so if you're going to start opening yourselves up to it what is it that that you as an individual leader and perhaps a group of people that are going to be chaperoning this process how do you need to be prepared to behave and challenge yourselves in order for this to even start otherwise what's the point it's not going to go anywhere yeah Aina, what would you say yeah I'm thinking about what you said about risk actually I'm thinking a lot of things I'm thinking of that example you gave which is an example of like full-on participatory action research which in international development 
people have been talking and writing about for quite a few decades. It's really not that <laughs> radical. So the inner cynic in me, who really aligns with you, Tia, is a bit like, come on, this isn't actually that <laughs> radical. So part of me is a little bit like, look, this is the work. But then I'm thinking about risk and how... Actually, one one thing I'd really like to do is is to do a mini project to reconfigure our current notions of risk and reconfigure them from a feminist perspective. Because we talk about risks in terms of risks to institutional reputation, risks to our ability to control a process. We never really talk about risks in terms of us. We're not living up to our values. The risks to the fact that we're not being at all participatory. The fact that this is a methodology that's been spoken about and written about and researched for decades, and yet we're still not there. We never really think about risk in that way. And I'd really love to challenge people to think about risk in a very different way to the ways in which that very neoliberal model around risk to efficiency, effectiveness. Yeah, so it's difficult. But but at the same time, yes, I do have compassion. And I do, and I kind of wonder, going back to what Natalie said, Can we light a small fire around this? Can this be a trial? Can we do this participatory action research exercise as a trial? Let's learn from it. Let's start small and build from there. Is that a better way to go about it? We're not talking about wholesale immediate change. We're talking about small steps, small fires, increments. And what can we learn from it? In terms of the risk, I also don't think people look at positive. So when we think about risk as just things we don't, we're like uncertain about, I don't think we ever really account for the positive things that could be gained. So I guess, yes, can I just submit a verbal application to join you on this project? (laughs) I think we should. Because if you think about, okay, Feminist organisations doing radical work, it's risky. That's risky work, right? It's pushing up against power structures. It's speaking truth to power. For those organisations, it's so hard to get funded by some of the big donors because of their risk-averse appetites, cultures. And I know this is an upstream problem. I know part of the problem is about donors and funders and their mindsets. So I do think there's a conversation that we should open up around risk. Yeah. And learn, like you said, Leila, near the top of our conversation that there are organizations out there doing this who are taking that different approach uh, just uh, examples coming to my mind of an organization that is really small grassroots women-led organization where not i can't remember the terminology that they use but basically not sticking to our values is named in their organizational risk re- register which is owned by their board of trustees and i think maybe that's an example but it's also let's ask ourselves how did that manage to end up in that organization's risk register And it's because that organisation, for lots of reasons, but one is that organisation isn't receiving any kind of large institutional funding. Its donors are much more, much smaller, much more open to being led by the organisation's strategy rather than the other way around. So that brings us back to this conversation around values, perhaps, and how as an organisation you're values are informing who your funders are or perhaps even your attitude towards risk yeah 100 percent. and i think me and tia have even joked before about these massive organizations perhaps need to just be broken into lots of little ones so they've got that ability to be more agile to actually be less risk averse or just broken up entirely <laughs> or just broken up entirely yeah <laughs> just exactly. burst into the wind <laughs> yeah but i'm excited about a collaboration you should do on risk that'd be very cool you mentioned earlier people being able to embrace this kind of thinking or not what people take away and how they 
they action it or not. We'd be really keen to hear of any other challenges that you're finding in terms of empowering people to become feminist leaders. And I'm particularly curious about men's role in in feminist leadership and how that's taken back into organisations. We've seen that defensiveness sometimes in terms of our clients or where we've seen defensiveness about what feminist leadership means to certain people and how they take on that word. So yeah, just keen to hear a bit more about the challenges. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about men. So when I think when we first started our programme, our first pilot cohorts didn't have any men, did they now? No. And then slowly... Not that we were like open. We didn't, we never say that we're only working with women. Yeah. Sorry, Leila. No, I just couldn't remember. Yeah. And then slowly it's grown. So we have a handful, if we're lucky, we have a handful in each cohort, which we're really happy about. And look, not everyone agrees with us. I've been in spaces, did an event with a couple of people from the UK women's movement who were asked about men's engagement and they weren't very keen. But I think our, our position is, is that we feel men's engagement and feminist leadership is really vital. If we're only working with women, we're totally ignoring all of these other gender power relations from their lives. So I don't know how we're supposed to address patriarchy in an institution without working with men. We also don't think the burden of this work should fall to women alone. We didn't create it. We didn't create the entire system. And let's face it, a lot of the work around feminist leadership, the contestation, the pushing behind the scenes, the backdoor lobbying, that's all unpaid labour, isn't it? You know, so we don't think that burden should fall on women. And also one thing we definitely don't want to do is homogenize men. Let's talk about queer men, the experiences of queer men. Let's talk about trans men. Let's not think about men in this really binary, I go back to that term, homogenous way. So we want to, we really want to promote men's engagement. I think it, it can be really difficult. I think Nat's really perceptive about these. She's probably more perceptive about these dynamics than me. I think there's a lot of discomfort from a lot of men about who do attend our course. The first area of discomfort is really how do they negotiate the space, the training space where they are in a minority. So people aren't sure, should I even speak? And we're like, yes, you should. It's really important. But we believe in the engagement of men, but we believe in the engagement of men within what we would call a feminist framework, which involves, look, we want men to get engaged in this agenda, but to do it in a way that shows that they're still accountable to women, that shows that they're committed to women's leadership. And we're not interested in what we call soft engagement of men. And by that, we aren't involving men because, oh, you're the father of a girl or you have a daughter or that isn't what we're talking about. We need men to really focus on the power that they hold and to really be accountable to their role in helping to shift that power. Yeah, it's not always comfortable, is it, Nat? It's not always easy. We also have some really interesting conversations with participants, male and female participants, about what happens when men do start displaying feminist leadership practice. And what often gets noticed is that men are disproportionately rewarded for that practice, depending on where they are situated. So, for example, a white man in a European or North American based NGO doing that might be applauded for feminist leadership behaviours and changing his ways of working. But that would look very different if you're a, a man based in an NGO in which there are different systems and structures at play. So we have some really interesting conversations around that and lots of feelings generated from participants around it too. So interesting. 
how do you manage that? How do you allow men into that space to then know that they might go off and take up space away from women because they've taken on feminist leadership values and principles? And actually then, I don't know, people notice them over other women attending your training. That feels like a really complicated conversation. I have a real creeping anxiety that feminist <laughs> leadership is going to be mainstreamed by white men. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think Layla and Natalie will let that happen. For us, it comes back to the training the training what feminist training and feminist learning spaces look like which Hilla's mentioned and mm. we hope anyway that part of what we're doing is equipping people to take what they're learning into their everyday lives but we're not always going to get it but I also, I also want to go back to the question about challenges there are so many challenges I think oh I think one challenge in terms of doing this work in institutions, the white fragility is still really there. And to the extent that I've been in spaces where even just speaking about the history of intersectionality and the black women and the women of colour who've been mobilising the ideas over the centuries, people have complained about it. They've complained about us wanting to talk about that and have felt that it's inappropriate. We've asked them, do you know who this woman was? And some people have felt, oh, you shouldn't really, it was clear we didn't know who these women were. You shouldn't have asked us. Yeah, that level of white fragility, that is still there. So the work can be very draining. I think also in in organisations, Natalie touched on this when she spoke about care in organisations where there's high levels of trauma exposure as a result of the work. I think it can be really difficult to get people to engage with stepping into their own power or even acknowledging that they have power and can result in really harmful power dynamics in which it's the senior leadership team have all the power The rest of the staff have nothing. There's nothing the rest of the staff can do. That means they're not accountable for anything. They're not responsible for anything. And then you're in this situation where nothing shifts because everyone's one group is othering the other and no one wants to make any concessions. So the impact, I think, of trauma or secondary trauma on organizational dynamics can be really difficult to navigate. How do you support people to get behind this agenda when they're just swimming in trauma, right? They're swimming in these they're exposed to these kind of power differentials, the abuses and misuses of power all the time. I think that can be a massive challenge. Now, what else would you say is a challenge of the work? There's a really practical one around organisational structure, which is that people often start learning a bit more about feminist leadership principles and what it could look like like in practice and make some assumptions around what that means for organisational structure. And the assumption often is, we need to have a flat structure. Hierarchy is evil. We shouldn't do, we shouldn't, we should dismantle that. And that can lead to some quite binary thinking, I think, around what a feminist organisation looks like. And I guess one of the things that we try to do is challenge that myth, or what we believe is a myth, that feminist organisations must be completely flat because, and that's, it's often espoused because it's there's a belief underneath it that is, one of the only ways in which we can really disrupt the harmful power dynamics that are at play within organisations is just to remove the hierarchy. But what we know, of course, is that it's not the hierarchy itself that's anti-feminist. It's the way powers used within it. And we've seen plenty of examples of flat structures where there are loads of power dynamics at play and they're actually far more hidden often than the power dynamics within organisation where there's an obvious hierarchy. So just on like a really practical level, that's the challenge we see sometimes. It's like, okay, what do we do with our management structure? And there's some careful thinking required around around why you might want to start changing it. Lauren and I have a flat structure, but there's power dynamics. 
being wielded constantly between us. <laughs> yeah, and I've worked in both the hierarchical and flat and yeah, always found it to be either or challenging in terms of the power and where I fit into it. There's, It's interesting what you're talking about in terms of trauma because we had a guest on Pradeep Jayaratnam Joyner who specializes in leadership, strategic planning and management. And he talks about an appreciation of trauma, both individual and within the organization. I obviously exist with my own trauma, but I never really thought about how that impacts the way I move and work through that organization. I just always thought it was like a thing to hold in myself. But it's a very structural issue. I think feminists speak about trauma as a as related to structures, power. And I think it is a shame. I think there's a real opportunity here for people working in humanitarian organisations. I was speaking to someone at the weekend who works for a refugee organisation and I was asking her, she's doing frontline work with refugees, and I was asking her about the extent to which her workplace was trauma-informed because she's hearing these horrible, these really traumatic stories day in, day out, and she's having to transcribe and write reports on them. And there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing in place. And so I think opening up a conversation conversation about that is really important because it's not just violence against women and girls organizations because I think those organizations at least there's a discussion happening there about it in so many other places it's just not it's not seen through that lens and it's definitely not really spoken about how that shows up in interpersonal behaviors the research shows for example that in organisations where there are high levels of trauma exposure as a result of the work, interpersonal conflict is likely to be higher, right? Which makes sense because there's stress, perhaps there's more mistrust, but yet we don't really speak about this through that lens or have the language to do so in so many sectors, I think. I think the thing that's very bizarre is that we aren't so good at practising this kind of care between us, but we're really good at recommending it to other people, Lauren. <laughs> yeah, I think we're very good at recommending a lot of things to other people and not ourselves. Because I think we because we've put in adopt a trauma-informed lens when you're asked people to share their stories. Like we've put it in so many different recommendations, but I don't think it's something we're good at. Do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, and I think something I'm going to take away from this conversation is like the individual, like going back to myself and assessing the power I have and the spaces that I work with, positive and or negative. And I think that reflexive piece just takes practice and time. And like I'm starting to become attuned to these things, but the amount of layers and things that I need to become attuned to and understand takes time and it's a long-term commitment and I think taking away from this conversation I'm going to embrace that longer term process rather than think oh I need to become a feminist leader tomorrow or next week actually this is going to take time I need to reflect a bit more on my power in relationship to others and also in relationship to Tia and how you experience things very differently from me and the impact of others on you. I have a list of ways you've impacted me which should we go through (laughs) Maybe not right now but yeah anything that you're going to take away? This is not the first time we've had guests talk about the importance of care and the importance of recognizing there's only so much that I can do and there's only so much that can be achieved. I think it's a hard thing to practice because I experience the world very differently from Lauren, from other people around me. We all experience the world in different ways. But I do think that one of the things that I want to take away is how much of a radical, transformative act things that I believe will disadvantage me could be. And is that my own small bit of activism? Is my pursuit of perfectly written reports? Is that just reinforcing a system where expectations on women of color are then higher? Or do I need to be more active and vocal in the fact that this pursuit of perfectionism is not of my own creation and is not something that is applied 
evenly in the world and therefore by actively resisting it am I moving more towards that space of collaboration and that's what I want is this feeling that we are all going to do it together if we're doing it for each other and so that's probably the overarching big piece there's also some stuff around like really being led by our values and what that practically looks like because I often have that question of yes we say we're doing this and we say that we're like value these things and these things are important but what is our role in making sure that the people that we're interacting with like specifically our clients that we're holding them to it too because we talk about power and positionality but we don't challenge it in a way that maybe I would always like to. I think that's an important thing of figuring out like what those spaces are and what I'm willing to do, where I'm willing to compromise, as we've talked about before, these hills we're willing to die on. And yeah, it's just been such a good conversation. I have so much to think about for our work moving forward. Yeah. I was going to say, just because you use the language of liberation, you know, what if you get to liberation and you're so tired and you're so bruised and you're so drained from writing perfect reports and holding yourself to such a high standard. What value is that liberation then if you're battered by the time you reach it? And that's why I think care is not fluffy or self-indulgent. It's a strategy for building power. So just want to encourage you on that, really. And I think that's a hard... We're moving into like very emotional territory now. And I think that's a really hard thing for me to come to grips with because I think about my family. My grandparents immigrated from the Philippines. I think about that and I think about self-care as like a thing to do in the context of an immigrant family who like this whole concept of take a rest, take a mental health day. Like I just picture my grandmother being like, what? <laughs> like, what does that like? Yeah, I, can, definitely. I just see that it's important to restore. It's important to be strong for the fight for the struggle for the things and maybe that's maybe it's because I'm like not well calibrated because I'm like no there's always more to give I don't need that hour of sleep because it means something if I can produce more in this space I find it hard to get out of that thinking which is something I'm working with my therapist on how can people find you so you can find us our website is wearefeministleaders.com We are on Twitter at we underscore R underscore FL. Search for us on LinkedIn. I think that's about it. Great. And how often do you run your courses? At the moment, we're running them twice a year. And the next one will start in September 2023. We'll be opening for registrations in June or July time. We have a little newsletter you can sign up to on our website, which will tell you the exact dates and when to register. Perfect. We'll be signing right up. It's been so lovely to meet you both and to have this conversation. We've really enjoyed it and we're taking away so much. Yeah, that's it from us. That's it from us. I'm Tia. I'm Lauren. I'm Layla. I'm Natalie. And this has been the Journey to Transformation. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Journey to Transformation. Leave us a five-star rating and a written review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Journey to Transformation is written and edited by us, Tia Rogers and Lauren Burrows. Our music comes from Praz Canal.